The following is a production of the Phoenix Studios Podcast Network here at the University of Wisconsin-Green Bay. For more podcasts, be sure to visit uwgb.edu forward slash podcasts. This is serious, 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 serious fun. Hello and welcome back to a new serious fun. I am your host, as always, Dr. Brian Carr, and we've got a good one this time around. Well, we have good ones most times, but this, this one's especially good. When you think about our current socio-political landscape, pro wrestling is either the last thing you'd use to describe it, or maybe you think it's the only accurate description. But there's no denying that the moment we find ourselves in right now has roots in this great American art form, and a few people embody the power of pro wrestling synthetic reality, or are as responsible for its ills, as Vincent Kennedy McMahon, the once and future chairman of pro wrestling's biggest company, World Wrestling Entertainment, or WWE. McMahon has been a fixture on television screens around the globe for decades as the sometimes villainous, sometimes venerated character of Mr. McMahon, but in recent years, it's the off-screen behavior of the billionaire that has really come to the forefront. Between allegations of sexual assault and harassment, inappropriate use of company funds to cover up some of those allegations, questionable partnerships and business practices, as well as his close association with former President of the United States Donald Trump, his wife Linda actually served in Trump's cabinet, and Trump is a member of the WWE Hall of Fame, among other things, have certainly raised some questions, both academically and politically. Those questions, among others, are what our returning guest Abraham Josephine Reisman attempts to explore in her new book, Ringmaster, Vince McMahon and the Unmaking of America, and that's what we're going to delve into right now on Serious Fun. My guest this week is a returning champion here on Serious Fun. You've seen her work in the Washington Post, the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, Vice, I could go on. Uh, she's also the author of the phenomenal True Believer, The Rise and Fall of Stan Lee. You can go check out our discussion about that in the Serious Fun archives. Her latest book, Ringmaster, Vince McMahon and the Unmaking of America, drops on March 28th, wherever books are present. If books are there, you can probably find Ringmaster there. And so I'm going to try to do like a uh, the, the ring announcer voice here. And it's going to be very <laughs> ill-advised, so bear with me. <laughs> Welcome, Abraham Josephine Reisman. Hey, all right. Hello, it's good to see you. It's nice to nice to see you as well. Uh, yeah. It was quite the introduction. I appreciate it. Thank you. I, we we try to we 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 spare expense everywhere but the over the top introductions. Yeah, absolutely. You get paid extra for that. So yeah, you, know, you got to give it your all. <laughs> Wait, who's who's getting paid? <laughs> yeah, right, right. That is the thing, you know, I'm doing this media tour and so much of it is like people who are just doing this for the love of the game or for the mm -hmm. Patreon dollars, you know, yep. there was a time when you would do a book tour and your appearances would be with staffers at radio stations and television mm -hmm. stations. And now we're in this blighted media environment where nobody makes any money. Yeah, which is, you know, that's uh, you certainly written a lot about that and, and talked a lot about that. Yeah, um, yeah. Well, mostly on Twitter. I just on uh, I no no one no one should or has hired me to do uh, a big media industry rant in like written long form mm -hmm. uh, form. 
Yeah. <laughs> so that's good. I mostly keep my complaining to Twitter, which I, I always like to say, you know, my grandfather was a very prolific writer of letters to the editor. And I'm just mm -hmm. following in his tradition. It's just that Twitter is the new letters to the editor. It's where you write, sir, I am dismayed at this stupid thing, you know? Yeah. Well, except like too many of them are now writing letters to the editor saying how awesome the editor is. And that oh, just feels Christ, like I know. It feels I know. Wrong. Yeah. It's a, like, it's sir, a terrible you're doing a great job, sir. Sir, please keep stepping on us. Yeah, we love it. Yeah, it, it, I always just come back to the fight uh, fact that you know Twitter was a hellhole, but it was our hellhole. Yeah, right? exactly. Well, totally. I mean, what what I what I said, you know, there was that time in October when everyone's like, "Twitter's dying, it's dead," and then afterward, all the scolds were like, "Well, I guess you spoke too soon about being dead." Okay, two things. One, a lot of really good users are not there anymore. But two, mm -hmm. more importantly. It's it is dead insofar as, you know, the metaphor I use is like I'm Jewish and I think way too much about Jewish history and in terms of Jewish history. But it's a useful metaphor when the Romans uh, destroyed the temple and uh, overturned what remained of Jewish sovereignty and what is now Israel, Palestine. Um, that was the end of the Judean Republic of the Judean Commonwealth, rather. That was mm -hmm. the end of that. Now, did that mean that they salted the earth and everybody, nobody lived there anymore? No, there were still people there. There was still a government. It's just that the government mm -hmm. was now fully controlled by, you know, genocidaires and imperialists. And so it's like right now, Twitter, Twitter did die. That iteration mm -hmm. of Twitter is gone. Now what we have is this like occupied framework where you know we're all at the whim of elon it's it's really bad but i i do maintain that twitter did die and we're all in hell right now i mean 100 like this is not the same site it used to be there no. it is the worst elements of it have gotten worse and the mm -hmm. good elements of it are you know there are some who are still on there just out of sheer bloody mindedness or oh yeah me um, I actually I, yeah. what I read was that there are not that many people who deleted their accounts I think there's right. like, there's probably less activity from uh, certain sectors but like we're all addicted I mean I, I'm not giving up Twitter until it dies mainly just because of professional necessity that's yes. where I have my audience yep. I mean that's where I have my regular tune in today for some you know prime Josie Reisman uh mm -hmm. content that's if you want to do that that's where it happens and i have like you know almost twenty thousand followers there which is not a million people um mm -hmm. but it's the biggest following i have on any social media account so it's like what am i gonna do i i can't it's that's the place where, and that's the place where i connect with people not just mm -hmm. like people i'm selling the book to but like subjects for interviews and you know, collaborators, all of that. So I don't know why we're talking about Twitter. Sorry, I, 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 mean, I think about Twitter far too much. Well, I think it's actually super relevant because I agree with you 100%. Like I also was one of those people like, I'm going to get rid of this. It's just, I can't abide this. But I'm like, where am I going to put like, because I all you know, like, you know, I have books too. You have books yeah. and you know, you, you are very prolific and you got a lot of work coming out there. Where are you going to repeat that audience? You can't grow it anywhere no, else. No, Twitter is this bizarre horror. Twitter is this bizarre historical accident that like mm -hmm. was not planned to go the way that it went. Um, and I don't think you can recreate it there. I don't know what other things will come in its wake, but you can't just say, Oh, here's the new Twitter. Like right. Twitter was not one thing. Twitter was this weird agglomeration of things. And what made it work was that there were active, you know, interesting users in all these different sections that got agglomerated. You know, and now it's like the right wing voices get amplified 
and we're all stuck with them and you know but they don't want it to be a total echo chamber because then they would have nobody to make fun of you know yeah it's like we have truth social already and it's hardly used because even right-wingers you know want to have libs around that they can dunk on mm-hmm. that's part of the fun and the same goes for the libs and the lefties and whoever is like you want to have the presence of these other groups that you would never associate with now yeah. um in this ecosystem so you can dunk on them like if you started a new twitter you would not go into a place where there would be lots of right-wing voices and the right-wing voices wouldn't go into a place where you are it's, mm-hmm. It was an accident and you can't recreate it. I think we're too, thank God, we're too divided now. And Twitter just wouldn't wouldn't accumulate in the way that it did. And so I think that that actually is a really good introduction because this idea of these sort of organic or accidental spaces being sort of taken over and subjected to the whims of, ins- whims of insane billionaires is actually a major theme in your book. So it- I suppose you're right. There yeah. is, there is kind of a parallel there. Right. Um, Territories, Twitter, there's, there's, there, there no, are, you're, you're not wrong. I mean, yeah. there was an existing wrestling ecosystem that, you know, much like I just said, was an agglomeration of regional wrestling promotions that had a certain degree of autonomy but also were under this confederation which was really a cartel um called the national wrestling alliance and then vince mcmahon takes over his father's company his father's company had been in the nwa and then he basically proceeds to annihilate every regional promotion you know at the end there's only ted turner of his initial rampage and then eventually uh even Ted Turner gets bought out and is no longer a part mm-hmm. of the game in wrestling. And Vince has no opponents left. And he kind of gets to dictate the rules, not just of his company, but kind of of wrestling in America and the U S and Canada, at least. And, and even like a Tony Khan is just not on that same level. No, like, no, Tony Khan, whatever you want to say about Tony Khan, Tony Khan is not doing what Vince McMahon did when Vince took over mm-hmm. his dad's company. You know, I mean, AEW has been around for a few years and they're in a pretty good space for what Mm -hmm. they are. They're certainly cooler than WWE Mm -hmm. and certainly hipper and have more of the vote of like serious wrestling heads. But think about it. I mean, a, if you're talking about rate of conquering Vince, Mm -hmm. you know, makes the first payment of four on his uh, purchase of the company in 1982 by 1985, you know, le- less than three years later, it's not even a full three years. In March of 1985, he has the first WrestleMania and it's mm-hmm. this massive success. And it's like, that's a very short period of time to have more or less become the leading person in wrestling. And then mm-hmm. to continue that momentum, you just don't see that with, with Tony Khan right now. Tony Khan has done well for himself, but he is not the conquering general who is mm-hmm. just overrunning the the united states and canada it's just not happening like that and vince really was um an unstoppable force at least after a certain point like wrestlemania could have talk about accidents of history wrestlemania could easily have not gone well and could have been something that like bankrupted him he was bleeding money and hiring new talent and expanding into new markets and so wrestlemania the first one was a huge gamble um, he did not have the money to watch that be a failure, 
But mm -hmm. there are all these little twists and turns that allow him to succeed. And then by the end of the decade, it's not just little accidents. It's like he really is the money-making machine. And more importantly, everybody else is getting decimated. So, yeah, it's not unlike Twitter in that now you have a world where the company of WWE, which still remains the industry trendsetter, um, in terms of not coolness and like maybe techniques of moves or whatever, but just in terms of being a massive corporation with its finger in every media pie, mm -hmm. you know, television, film, music, reality TV, whatever, you know, um, it's all there. Um, and AEW doesn't really have that. Not that no. there's not a diss to AEW. It's just, they're different kinds of entities. AEW is a wrestling company. And uh, WWE is a media corporation. And even like Ted Turner, like, you know, he was a media guy. Like that was, you know, he, he liked wrestling. Yeah. But he saw it as content for his existing platform. Yeah, he saw it as content. It was, yeah. it was, it was something that he was not, you know, an expert in. Ted Turner was not mm -hmm. running WCW, his company, World Championship Wrestling, at a minute level. He had people who mm -hmm. did it for him. Um, so very unlike Vince in that way. And and like Ted's willing to cut bait with wrestling. Like it was not and Vince, Vince, what whatever you say about Vince, he will not let go of wrestling. He's not letting go of that company. You know, I mean, he was yeah. he was like briefly, quote unquote, ousted from the summer until the winter of last year. But like that was such a blip. And also. I say, quote unquote, around ousted because he was still the principal, you know, the biggest individual shareholder of the company, which is publicly mm -hmm. traded. And he controlled about 80 percent of the shareholder votes. So, like, he never left power. He still was the ultimate authority at WWE, even when he had, you know, supposedly stepped back. And now he's back with a vengeance with this mm -hmm. board coup and like becoming the executive chairman and everything. He he doesn't want to let go. He never will. I don't think. Well, he's even capable of it. Is is the broader? Thing. I don't think it would make sense to him. I don't think that 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 giving up like that is something he would do at all willingly. I think it would have to be that he'd be incapacitated in some way. Yeah. And even then, you know. So we've hit on this a lot, I think, and and, and folks who are coming in, uh, I, I think most people listening probably have some idea who who Vince McMahon is, right? I can give you the lowdown um, if you want, but yeah. So let's. So as as someone like I spent a lot of time trying to explain to my colleagues like the political and academic value professional listening. Oh, uh, right. sorry, it's professional so wrestling, important to study right. it. Yeah, it is, and, and so maybe they'll listen to you when they don't listen to me. Um, <laughs> so why Vince McMahon? Like you know, why focus in on Vince? You know, he's uh -huh. obviously he's the owner of WWE. He's he's a very important figure not only in this industry but in media in general. Um, but you know, you are, this is the second book and what, you know, feels like a duology, maybe possibly a trilogy as we'll talk about later. Yeah. I got um, a third one that's in a similar vein, but yeah. Right. Um, and so, you know, you went from Stan Lee, who was the face, the public face of Marvel comics, at least. So certainly maybe not, uh, you know, getting a lot mm -hmm. more credit than he probably merits, uh, in terms of the creative side, mm -hmm. um, onto Vince, who almost kind of seems like the opposite, right? A guy who is both the public face, but also has through grim determination and has actually had that influence. Yeah. 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 I mean, Vince, 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 you know, profited off of a lot of other people's ideas, but you can never call him an absentee landlord. I mean, he is mm -hmm. intimately right now. It's unclear what his relationship to creative is. There's a lot of debate mm -hmm. about that. Um, but historically he was the final say 
in all creative decisions. And I mean all. You interview people and they'll be telling you, oh, you know, we had this little skit we were doing in the ring and we had to change one line, but Vince was out of town. So we had to wait three hours until we could get him on the phone to approve changing this one word, you know? I mean, that's, Mm -hmm. I'm not making that up. That really was the story somebody told me. And that's typical. Vince was a micromanager. And um, yeah, say what you will about, I've used that phrase like four times now, Um, (laughs) but uh, you know, Stanley and Vince have a lot of things in common, but you're right. You know, that's an astute point. Stan was somebody who took a lot more credit for creative work than he deserved because his primary role was not really as a writer. Um, It was as an editor. Um, But Vince really is hands-on. Vince, Mm -hmm. if there was a creative angle in WWE, somebody else may have started the idea. Somebody else may have written it. But like Vince is leaving his thumbprint on that and he's not going to let it happen unless he wants it to happen, which is its own kind of creative influence. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, no, Vince, Vince, Vince really did revolutionize wrestling uh, for better or for worse and really reshaped it in his own image. And that's something that Stan can't really boast. You know, Stan, I'm not saying this is like a fanboy or fangirl or whatever as a partisan. Um, but you know, the, the bigger comparison point in terms of creative impact would be Jack Kirby, um, Mm -hmm. when it comes to comics. I mean, that's closer to what Vince did. You know, Jack really did do an enormous amount of work that in a very short period of time completely transformed the industry and art form in which it dwelled. I think the, the larger kind of thread that goes through this book and in your argument is that it's worth looking at this, not just in terms of entertainment, but mm-hmm. as a sort of maybe microcosm is not the right word, but a sort of representation of the larger sort of social, political, yeah, existential forces outside of it. This is a big, sprawling topic. And, you know, you could probably write multiple books on this. So um, how did you come by this idea? Like, what was the genesis of it? And, and you know, mm-hmm. I, I'm always interested in process, right? Like, how did you decide, OK, these are the kind of parameters I'm going to set. Here's who I'm going to talk to. Um, here's how long I'm going to go in that kind of thing. I oh mean, God, I don't narrative. set any of that stuff that I, just Oh, you don't. Wing, okay. I wing it when it comes to, I wish I could say I had some strict process that I follow and it works for me every time, but I really wing it when it comes to planning out how these books go. Um, mm-hmm. it's worked out twice and hopefully it'll work out at least the third time. But, um, for whatever reason, I'm unable, I usually, I, I come up with plans and then I break them and I feel guilty for breaking them, but it works out fine anyway. So I've sort of stopped making plans and just letting things go the way they're going to go. And it tends to work out more or less. So I'm sure I could optimize, but I haven't. But as to the Genesis question, though, um, you know, I was having it's as simple as I was having a conversation with my spouse, the wonderful writer and editor, S.I. Rosenbaum, Um while uh, pretty soon after I had turned in the first draft of True Believer and thus was contractually allowed to pitch another book. Mm -hmm. Um, So we were brainstorming what to do. And one of us, neither of us can remember, brought up the idea of what about a biography of Vince McMahon? Um, Genuinely don't remember which one of us it was. It could have been either because she's not like a WWE fan, but she had reported on wrestling actually you know, basically before I did, Mm -hmm. um, 
uh, as a local news reporter in a couple of different cities. And she reported on just indie wrestling, but also on um, she reported on Killer Kowalski's funeral. She wrote about she wrote a feature on Killer Kowalski's funeral when he died. Um, and, and if you don't know, if you're listening, Killer Kowalski was a really important figure in wrestling, not like one of the big marquee names, but trained no, but a lot he of trained a million people, like Triple H and a bunch of those other really big yeah, names. China, a lot of people were trained mm-hmm. by Kowalski, especially if you came out of New England. He was sort of a, mm-hmm. a regional legend. Um, and uh, when he died, my spouse just got assigned to the story and, mm-hmm. inter- you know, she's interviewed Triple H and I haven't. Let's put it that way. <laughs> so, you know, she's got that one up on me. Um, but uh, the we were having this conversation about what to do. So either she or I, me having been a childhood wrestling fan or at least a teen wrestling fan, um, but not having watched in 20 years. Mm-hmm. Uh, that idea resonated with me and it could have been me bringing it up, but eventually we came back to it in the conversation. It's just, that was a good idea. You know, that, that, that was something we should explore. And the more I thought about it and the more I sort of just did a cursory look at his life, the Mm -hmm. more I realized this was just a truly astounding story that had not really been told in a serious historical or journalistic way, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, And I don't know. It seemed like, if anything, low hanging fruit. I just I was astounded that there hadn't been more serious writing about Vince mm-hmm. um, once I learned the basic outline. And then, of course, as I learned even more details, you know, a, a big factor in that also, I should say, was Dark Side of the Ring, which had just premiered around then um, and was, uh, you know, was very instrumental in those early days of kind of getting the lay of the land of certain major stories from the past. So I really lucked out that I pitched it when I did because that show was a good, I mean, I had to go beyond what they did in my own reporting, of course, but um, and a documentary series is very different from a book, but that was a huge factor early on in kind of going, wow, this, there are all, it's not just that there's a Vince McMahon story. It's there are all of these Vince McMahon stories, mm-hmm. plural, that like every wrestler who's worked with him has something of a Vince McMahon story, but nobody's really assembled these into a unified theory of Vince McMahon. Right. And, you know, you could, like I said, you could do multiple volumes on that. I would like to actually, I mean, I, I, this one, I will spoiler for people. The core narrative ends in the summer of 1999. Mm -hmm. Like there's still a good 25 years that have happened already that I haven't covered. Um, and that was just for space reasons. I mean, mm-hmm. I, there was Vince's life is so eventful and so rich with subtext that needs drawing out in analysis that I couldn't get to his entire life in the level of detail that mm-hmm. it really needed and still make my word count. You know, I had a contracted word count that was pretty hard um, as in like solid and I didn't have much wiggle room on it because it's a wrestling book. You don't want to have a phone book sized wrestling book because yes, the wrestling heads will read it, read but it. <laughs> you want to reach out to mainstream readers and they're going to be intimidated by that mm-hmm. or think it's a dumb idea. So it needed to be a manageable size. And I just reached this point where I was like, I think I have to not tell the whole story. I have to just cut it off. Mm-hmm. But luckily I was going to cut it off in 2001 with Vince triumphant, having uh, you know bought out WCW um, and ECW, the two mm-hmm. competitors at that point, and becoming a monopoly. But I realized that that wasn't the end of the story I had been telling. Yeah, you know, 
that was the end. That was, that's like an epical marker. You know, that's that's something that is very important to note as a crucial moment in the history of pro wrestling um, and, you know, American entertainment. Uh, but 2001 is not the moment when Vince truly embraces and becomes both his father and Mr. McMahon, the, mm-hmm. the character, which I would argue are kind of the same person, you know. Mm-hmm. The the real ending of that story is the death of Owen Hart and shortly thereafter, the end of the infamous greater power storyline where, you know, Vince is revealed as the mastermind who's been torturing Vince. <laughs> right. You know, uh, it's a very odd storyline that was not planned out well, but the one-two punch of Owen Hart dying, Owen Hart being a wrestler who died during a zip line stunt, it's technically called a descender, but you know, during mm-hmm. a, a stunt from the rafters um at a pay-per-view event live. Um, you know, Owen Owen dies in May, late May of 1999, and the show goes on. You know, that's that's the astounding thing was Vince had the show continue. Uh, the death happened relatively early in the lineup, and after a few minutes of confusion, they were, you know, not even 10 minutes, they were back into showing the action in the ring. And um, that's a real watershed. I would argue that from the standpoint of this biography, which is about his development and the impact he had on a lot of people, um, I would say that as far as his development goes, the death of Owen Hart is kind of a moment when of no, of no return, you know, mm-hmm. you can't undo the fact that Vince decided to keep the show going that happened. And I think it's sort of a, it's a fulfillment of a lot of threads that you see throughout the rest of his story, his story up to that point. But I would like to do a sequel at some point, probably when Vince is no longer with us, um, which mm-hmm. would make it, a little easier for certain people to talk. Um, I would like to revisit this because I was initially planning to write about his whole life and therefore have a lot of research and interviews pertaining to periods after 1999. Um, But, you know, I don't know when, no man shall know the day or hour, right? I mean, it'll happen at some point, I hope, but not, not quite there yet. Yeah. Well, and what's interesting in, in, in all of that, and, and I think you're right, and, and certainly thematically, the so there's two things I got to mention is that your core narrative ending in 1999, I think thematically makes a lot of sense, right? You know, um, if you if you want to psychoanalyze this man and kind of start to think about like, why does he do the things he does? You know, a, a storyline where he reveals himself to be the great evil that's holding everything down is including really himself. telling. Including yeah, himself. he himself. Yeah. Um, the other thing too, is that there's a, uh, and this is, you know, we talk about the parallels between comics and wrestling a lot. Um, but the sort of, there's almost like a punchline at, at the end of the, of the narrative or like, uh, or toward the end, like after you write about that, where it cuts to this like full art inlay of him in that moment. Right. And that's like a moment. If you followed wrestling, that's like burned into your mind. Cause that's like yeah. an iconic thing. Um, so I got to ask, who did those? Oh, yeah, um, I was about to say, uh, if you didn't book. ask, I was going to say it anyway. Um, a very talented illustrator who does stuff for news illustration, usually for magazines and newspapers, named Madison Ketchum, K-E-T-C-H-A-M, mm-hmm. as in Mary. Um, highly recommend checking out Madison's work. And if you are looking for an illustrator for anything, 
don't use AI, call Maddie. You know, Madison is, is an incredibly talented artist who, honestly, I would have had her do more illos, but the process kind of got gummed up in terms of me not knowing exactly what I wanted to have illustrated and kind of dragging my mm -hmm. feet on that because I was writing the book. And then we had a bit of a crunch time and I was like, I think we don't have time to do, I wanted to have like eight of them or something. Um, mm -hmm. But she, she managed to crank out these three total beauties. And, you know, one is at the beginning of part one, one is the beginning of part two. And then the third is at the end of part two. And yeah, I, I, you described that image, you know, that's seared into our memories. Mine is certainly included. You know, I, I had just started watching wrestling that spring of 1999 when I was 13. Um, and what's weird to remember is Vince was actually a good guy, a baby face. When I started watching, mm -hmm. it was during that brief period when he was being tortured by the greater power, you know, this, this, um, this unseen, uh, but often spoken of evil presence who was directing the undertaker, another wrestler and the undertaker's minions to do terrible things to Vince and his family, you know, um, Oh God, I just totally lost my train of thought while describing. This is the trouble with the greater power storyline. It was mm -hmm. such a challenge to get everything streamlined. This is true for like any wrestling storyline. When you're trying to write for a mainstream audience, the shorthand doesn't work. And you have to like actually explain the ridiculousness of the twists and turns. But, um, oh God, what was I saying? Oh, right. I was seared in my memory. Right. Because I had just started watching while Vince was the good guy. And then you have this big reveal that the greater power has been, vent, you know, he flips the hood off from this hooded robe where he's, that he's been wearing as he goes out for the big reveal. And it's Vince. And he says, it's me, Austin. It's me, Austin. Oh, son of a bitch. What? It's me, Austin. It was me all along, Austin. You know, addressing Stone Cold Steve Austin, who was both Vince, Mr. McMahon's rival, but also, according to Vince, Stone Cold Steve Austin was also an avatar of mm -hmm. Vince. Like Vince saw himself as, as Austin. So you have this moment where Vince is really addressing himself and says, it's me, Austin. It was me, Austin. It was me all along, you know? And it's, it, it, I remember watching that. I remember sitting, I don't actually remember whether it was at my house or a friend's house, but I remember staring at that screen and completely losing my mind. It didn't make any sense because I had perceived him as this sort of tough as nails, but mostly good hearted businessman because I hadn't watched the earlier stuff. So it's a stupid storyline and very repetitive for a lot of people who'd been watching since 1996 or before. Um, but for me, it was fresh and I, I feel like I just it was it was fitting to end there, you know, and eerie to revisit. So I yeah. wanted to have that image for people who didn't watch it and who might never watch it. I wanted people to just know a little taste of what that experience was like. Yeah. And in the context of what you're writing, it does take on that sort of just like, you know, it, it feels like a punchline, like it just sort of yeah. now you're staring face to face with the very theme of what you're talking about. Yeah. Yeah, um, I know. I also, I, I, it's, it, it, yeah. Anyway, go on. I was say, also, I was kind of surprised reading the book. I'm like, wait a minute. For some reason, Owen Hart's death and that storyline feel years apart in my mind. No, nope. right? no, nope. no. Nope. But they weren't. And, and that was the thing that kind of shocked me reading this. Like, oh, my God, all this happened like within weeks. Yeah. 
of a man dying in that ring. And they just went right in the back ring. to this. The next night after he dies, they have Raw in. Mm-hmm. I remember watching that, too, because I was not mm-hmm. actually watching pay-per-views yet at that stage. I had only just started watching and was just watching the free stuff, Raw. But SmackDown mm-hmm. hadn't even started yet. So I was just watching Raw. And um, I didn't see Over the Edge, the pay-per-view where Owen Hart died. I was a watcher of the show by then, but I did not watch the pay-per-view. So I heard the next day at school what had happened. And then that night I turned on Raw and I will never forget that bizarre, upsetting Mm -hmm. episode of Raw where they have like the, the, you know, 10 bell salute for Owen. And then the rest of the show is sort of in wrestling, you know, kayfabe, the word for, Mm -hmm. you know, the overall fiction of wrestling, like it's sort of in kayfabe where the wrestlers are still in their costumes and they're still having matches and all that, but they keep like dedicating the matches to Owen and they keep having these little interview snippets Mm -hmm. where it's an interviewer asking the wrestlers to remember Owen Hart. And I remember, again, I'd only been watching for like a couple of months, I think at that point, which is not that many episodes of wrestling. And here were all these tough guys who had been watching talking shit every week, weeping and, you know, saying, you know, a lot of stuff's fake, but this is real. And I'm like, Mm -hmm. fake real. I still don't know what the social contract of wrestling is at this Mm -hmm. point. You know, I still kind of don't. But, you know, then I especially (laughs) didn't. Um, And it was very surreal. All but you're right. It all happened with. And then the next night they tape the raw for the following week. And it's like everything's mm-hmm. back to normal within three days, two days, Sunday, he dies. And by Tuesday, they're filming a raw that's just returned to normalcy. The only thing that I think was weirder and that that was pretty weird. It's pretty weird. Yeah. Was was the Benoit incident. You you allude oh, to this God. in the book. And I feel like this is when you when you talk about doing that sequel. This is Yeah. When I do the sequel, like, I will get into much yeah. more detail about the Chris Benoit murder suicide. I did do a lot of research for that and there's more to be done. Um, That's actually an area where I think there's stuff to be discovered, but a lot of it has been dug up. It's just Mm -hmm. that people don't necessarily read the books where it's been written. Mm -hmm. Um, But yeah, you know, the, the surreal nature of the fact that they were doing a storyline where Vince died Mm -hmm. and they were really committing to the bit. Uh, more than usual to the point where Donald Trump allegedly thought Vince was dead or was worried he was dead and called WWE to ask. Um, I know we got to say allegedly, but it it feels like it's probably it feels true, true but it's yeah. Triple H telling the story and Triple H has been known yeah. to dissemble in the past. Um, but, you know, the point was they have this death oriented storyline. They're like going to be doing it. You know, they do a tribute to Mr. McMahon, all of that. And mm-hmm. Benoit right in the midst of that storyline um, for whatever reasons and due to whatever causes kills himself and his wife and kid. And they have to completely derail the death storyline. And it's very surreal because similarly to the Owen thing, you're like, wait, what? Like that's like Vince, you know, who was supposedly dead all of a sudden is appearing on the camera saying, you know, first saying we, we miss and love Chris Benoit. And then when the details came out, we will never speak of Chris Benoit again. You know, I mean, it's very weird stuff. But the thing is, wrestling is always just the weirdness of the real world turned up only so slightly. You know, mm-hmm. you say microcosm earlier when we were talking, and that's kind of what I was going for, not just for politics or whatever, but 
for kind of every human endeavor, mm-hmm. wrestling has parallels. Um, it's just that wrestling does everything with more theatrical openness. And of course, ironically, because it does all these things with theatrical openness, everyone just writes it off and doesn't learn anything from it. Not everyone, but you know, the, the majority of mainstream scholars and journalists and historians don't really, you know, put much truck in wrestling, despite the fact that it's extremely instructive. And also Mm -hmm. just as a product watched by way more people than are watching whatever TV show you're writing your think piece about, you know? And, and I, you have a line in here, um, you know, and I love this line. There's a lot of like little turns of phrase. And when I wrote these notes up and I sent them to you, I'm just like, I love this. I love this. I love this. This is one of them. Uh, you have this line wrestling may be indistinguishable from civilization. Almost like you can argue that on some level, not indistinguishable. I think I said inseparable or something. Oh, I I have indistinguishable, but I mean, the, the general sentiment remains the same, right? Like there, you can't really separate the two. Yeah. Wrestling is as old as, as we have writing, you know, Mm -hmm. I mean, wrestling probably goes back a lot longer than that. I watch my cats wrestle every day and, Mm -hmm. you know, my two cats have approved holds. They have, um, you know, uh, disqualifications. They have timeouts. Like, it's crazy. Mm-hmm. This is something that's just hardwired, this unarmed physical combat that involves grappling and throwing and pinning. You know, that's something that's really hardwired, maybe into mammals or animals in general. I'm not enough of an evolutionary expert to tell you. But I can tell you that for as long as we've had stories that we wrote down, we've been into wrestling. Gilgamesh wrestles. That's a major plot point. Uh, The biblical Jacob wrestles, another major plot point. Um, You know, I I could go on, but you don't have to. You know, West African wrestlers, Lute Traditionnelle is what it's called in French there. Um, You know, they've been wrestling since God knows when. It's yeah, I think I think unarmed physical combat involving throws and falls is really just something that for whatever reason we always get, no matter what the iteration of civilization is. You know, my spouse had this idea that I now can't stop thinking about, which is, you know, I I slightly put it in the book, but like pro wrestling is going to outlive this iteration of civilization. Yeah, like. You don't need you don't need electricity to do a pro wrestling match. You know, you don't need running water. You you just need to have some mats on the ground and an audience. That's it. You know, you if you're really hardcore, you don't even need the mats on the ground. But like mm-hmm. you just need to have some people who can theatrically express strength and weakness and an audience to watch them. That's it. And I think it's a really powerful art form that will have a life in whatever the next iteration of global or regional civilization we see is. Right. And, you know, um, and and to that point, you know, uh, you actually published um, an an essay in the New York times talking about this and kind of tying into the book and you use this term. And and I think you you posted about how excited that this word was now officially in the New York Times. (laughs) Yeah, Uh, yeah. I invented a term to try and uh, make my mark on the English language, I guess. Uh, No, it was just because I I felt like I needed to distinguish between uh, or or rather I need to take a term that already existed and bifurcate it. There needed to be uh, a 
one version of it and another version of it. So I kind of have old kayfabe and neo kayfabe. Old kayfabe, I don't use that term as often. I just say kayfabe because while it existed, you know, it was just kayfabe. That's no one right. thought of it as old. Um, but neo so kayfabe, probably which people it. don't all, also people right. don't think of neo kayfabe because yeah. I invented the term. But um, let me just get to the definition. I'll stop giving the preamble. Yeah. So kayfabe is the multi-purpose word that emerged from traveling carnivals in the late 19th century when wrestling was emerging uh, and that wrestling is hold on, held on to. And it means fake in some way, mm-hmm. sort of, kind of. You know, back then, kayfabe could be used in multiple ways. You could say, oh, you have to obey kayfabe. There's always backstage, I should say. Fans did not know about this word. But people in the industry would say like, oh, you got to, you got to follow kayfabe on that one, which just means, you know, you have to commit to your character or you have to, you know, follow the storyline. You have to do the fiction of wrestling. Um, and that noun referred to sort of the overall conceit and lie of wrestling, which was what you are seeing in the ring is on the level. That was the big flat foundational lie of the old kayfabe system. If you see somebody in the ring and he is billed as a, you know, uh, a righteous and upstanding Polish American, then, you know, that's, that may just be a lie. And in fact, he's, you know, an Italian American uh, womanizer or something, but you as a fan are going into the arena and going either, either you really do think it's real, like every ounce of you believes in it, or as was very common, you knew it was kind of fake, but you you liked to give in to the illusion and you liked that big, solid, comforting lie. Now, mm-hmm. what happens is Vince sort of killed kayfabe, or at least the old kayfabe system. Um, he and his wife, Linda, who is the, was the sometimes CEO of WWE, um, or I, back then it was the WWF, um, they would push for deregulation of wrestling, lower taxes and fewer um, requirements uh, for health and safety on the basis that wrestling was not real. They started in the mid eighties testifying in front of state legislatures or sending their minions to um, and saying, Hey, wrestling is just like the Harlem Globetrotters or the circus. It's not a real athletic event. So we shouldn't have to be governed by an athletic board um, and have to pay athletic taxes. And they were doing this covertly, but also on the television programs, they were showing wrestling that was more ridiculous than almost anything that had been that had appeared in wrestling up to that point. Stuff that was very unbelievable, you know, mm-hmm. stuff that was not, that you a cred a credulous viewer would even have trouble believing any of that was real. So eventually, the New York Times runs a big story about the deregulation effort in New Jersey in which they reveal that the WWF has confessed to running fake matches, you know, that wrestling is fake. And that was really the end of kayfabe. You couldn't go back from a front page. I think it was on the front page, uh, but a big story in the New York Times and and the New York Post within a few hours as well. So wrestling kind of muddles along for a few years, but in the mid nineties, it starts to develop this. It's not just Vince doing this. It's other people. And then Vince kind of latches on and makes it the law of the land. They started doing this new kind of approach 
that I dub neo kayfabe. And neo kayfabe is when you are not saying, hey, everybody, here's a real thing. You're saying to everybody, hey, everybody, here's a fake thing. Don't believe mm-hmm. that this is real. Don't get caught up in it um, as something that is, is, is like a sporting event. It's, it's sports entertainment, it's fiction, et cetera. But that said, tonight, you're going to see two guys who, if you believe all the rumors that you've been seeing online, actually hate each other. So guess what? One of them might really hurt the other guy. Or you're watching it um, because you are eager to see something outrageous, some outrageous truth get admitted as part of this pageantry of lies, you know, where you're excited because last week, you know, somebody came out and made fun of another wrestler's well-documented behind the scenes alcoholism problem. And you're like, wow, can he get away with saying that? And then this week you're tuning in to see what kind of insult he's going to use to reveal some kind of forbidden truth again. And what you're left with is not a solid flat foundational lie. You're left with this, set of slippery boulders, you know? I mean, it's just this craggy, uneven environment where you're encountering lies, you're encountering unspeakable truths, and you're encountering a lot of stuff in the middle. And you don't know, you even if you are aware that quote unquote wrestling is fake, you don't know exactly in what ways it's fake. Now, I mean, the best comparison point for non-wrestling fans these days would be reality TV. You know, reality TV is somehow manufactured, but you also know that it's somehow real and you don't really know where those two things begin and end. So any given moment, you're wondering, is that real? And that's a very powerful tool. That Neo Kayfabe is extremely powerful because in the attention economy, Nothing grabs attention quite like, wait a minute, you can, can you say that? Is that, did they mean that? Is that a Mm -hmm. hoax? That kind of bafflement forces you to pay attention. Your brain wants to put it in a bucket, you know? And even if it doesn't, the thrill of that confusion and that unspeakableness is, is something that can be really attractive for any number of people. You see in politics now, obviously, I mean, uh, that should be obvious to anyone who I was saying Mm -hmm. was hearing me say that. But, you know. We'll come back to that. I do want to come back. back Yeah, I I was I was realizing I was getting ahead of myself. So that's why. No, that's perfect. But I do want to come back. Uh, So we start off talking about Twitter and, you know, the the parallels are kind of obvious, I think, at this point. But what's also fascinating is that, you know, in the so-called reality era is the official Mm. sort of WWE term for it. Um, you know, a lot of that storytelling, that kayfabe or neo kayfabe is happening on social media where things, you know, have the appearance of also being real. Right. Um, yes. Which is almost kind of a, a form of kayfabe within itself. Oh, yeah. Um, well, that's people, the other. Sorry, I should say that's yeah. the other component of neo kayfabe is you generate all of this fiction about mm-hmm. behind the scenes information. And when people think they've discovered this secret about behind the scenes that you've revealed to them, they're sated. They go, OK, well, now I know the story. <laughs> I've mm-hmm. learned one thing behind the scenes. And even if that's manufactured, people take it as gospel. But anyway, yes, go on. Well, I mean, I'm just thinking here, like, you know, you see people respond to wrestlers like they will like so and so liked this post calling out this other wrestler or, you know, like, is there something going on? Um, this, this happened a lot with AEW, like CM Punk oh, and all yeah, that stuff. Yeah. But it happens to WWE too all the time. 
Um, and, you know, you also have things like, you know, you have the wrestlers themselves playing up like they have legitimate social media beef. Oh, it's yeah. Like, how real is the beef between uh, um, Becky Lynch and Ronda Rousey or, um, you know, like is exactly is this, like, are, like it might be real. It might not be. But I feel like, you know, they were at this point where OK, people start kind of getting wise to what we're doing. Mm hmm. Let's now throw that extra level because we already yes. see social media as this place where, you know, we, we're used to this pe people sort of putting like a potentially inauthentic version of self out there. Mm -hmm. And now it's like, can we trust anything being said there or is this the only thing we can trust? You see a lot we're... of people. Yeah. Yeah. Go ahead. You see a lot of people responding to it like it's real. And, you know, yeah. odds are it's probably not, but you're never quite sure. No. That's the thing. You're never yeah. quite sure. And you know, real things have happened on social media. So maybe this mm -hmm. is another one of them. You know, that's why in 1997, 1997, I should say, um, with the Montreal screw job, this infamous incident where Vince flipped the script on wrestler Bret Hart and had him lose the championship in uh, an unscripted, well, I mean, it was scripted by Vince, but as far as Bret was concerned, unscripted way, um, you know, because that happened and it was real, um, you have this whole subsequent generations of of wrestling fans going, well, the Montreal screw job happened. What if it happens again? You know, mm -hmm. and guess what? We haven't had anything like the Montreal screw job since the Montreal screw job, <laughs> but we're all waiting. I mean, there's stuff that's like close to it, but nothing quite like that. You know, main mm -hmm. event of a pay-per-view wrestler gets tricked garbage raining down you know i mean that that doesn't happen anymore but we're all chasing that high mm -hmm. and it's certainly thing a thing they've come back to right oh yeah we know people are looking for it let's now do a storyline where we are sort of creating mm -hmm. that artifice within the storyline yeah the closest um, thing we got was when cm punk did the pipe bomb promo mm -hmm. and you know this wrestler cm punk whose whole gimmick was that he was very irreverent and rebellious you know, came out and did this weird, weird monologue where he was just ripping into WWF. This was, what was it, 2011? Um, mm -hmm. And then that spiraled into a large storyline. And like only, a what was it, a couple of years ago, year and a half ago, did CM Punk finally do an interview where he's like, yeah, that was all made up. Like, I mean, mm -hmm. he was legit, but this is how you do it. This is how you do Neo Kayfabe. You base it in a truth and then you build a lie around it mm -hmm. where, as in this case, you have CM Punk legitimately pissed off at WWF, mm -hmm. as is basically every wrestler who ever works for them. And Vince one day basically just says, I want you to shoot on me. You know, I want you to go out there and say what you really think about me. And it, but the point is, it's all sanctioned. You know, it's mm -hmm. all. And then we're going to and then we're going to make it look like you went rogue. And. That's how you get people. People up until that interview, there were people who really still believed that the pipe bomb promo was off the cuff. I think a lot of people by that point had assumed it was somehow a work, you know, made up, um, planned beforehand. They kept the mic on him for a long time for it to to be authentic, right? Like, yeah, exactly. you know, about Vince McMahon, and you you're not gonna they're gonna cut away as fast as they can. Yeah, if it was but not people, planned. but but the point is like. When it's happening, it's always easy in retrospect to go, well, obviously that was made up. But mm -hmm. in the moment, the human mind is very impressionable and people really want to believe. So you end up with situations where they do. Mm -hmm. it confirms your priors. It confirms um, your your Bayesian priors. <laughs> Sorry, we don't need to get into John Chait right now, but yes. 
I mean, there's like, like you said, all the stuff is connected. On it's all level, connected so because yeah, I mean, everything, sorry, the, the, the law of hand reference I was making there was to this, this terrible pundit, John Chade, who wrote this awful mm-hmm. anti-trans article. And then when he was called out on having based the entire article on this lie that was then debunked, his response was to say, you know, well, this article should shift our Bayesian priors. Um, but I don't think, you know, but there, we have to wait for more investigation. And it's just like, oh, screw you. Um, but the point it's is, the dumbest thing I've ever anti-trans heard. Anti-trans people and the anti and the like, you know, quote unquote, pro-free speech people, these radical mm-hmm. centrists, whatever, they all commit to kayfabe. Like they kind mm-hmm. of believe this. Some of them, it, it's like all of them have a mix of both genuinely believing what they're saying and also being grifters. And mm-hmm. it's not as simple as being one or the other. You know, I mean, think about it in journalism. You may have a deeply held belief that, you know, cancel culture has gone too far or whatever, but you're only going to write about it over and over and over again if it's an ad, if it's advantageous to your editors and your publisher, whatever, to keep going to that well, you know, to keep saying, hey, let's complain about this. You need an editor who is also interested in that and sort of getting you to to be angry over and over again. And it's Mm -hmm. like, well, is that fake? Is it real? Like, you know, is it fake in that it's just, we know that this will gin up traffic. Is it real in that they have those beliefs? Yes. And yes, you know, it's not, it's not as simple as that. You, you really have to, in order to succeed in today's attention economy and be a firebrand, you really have to commit to whatever dumb bit you've chosen yeah. for yourself. So just pick your pick your bit wisely, I guess, is all mm-hmm. I would say. This this is your gimmick, and now you got to live. Yeah, this gimmick, is your gimmick. You have to work the gimmick. This is what people yeah. want, you know. Now, I would say we just saw the Dominion uh, voting systems lawsuit. Oh God, uh, yeah, the Fox the, stuff. The public just, discovery. Yeah, where the Fox where the Fox hosts all know that it's bullshit, mm-hmm. and they're just saying it anyway. Yeah, it's kayfabe. That's what it is. Mm-hmm. You commit to it, and again, it's got to work the marks because like. Is it rooted in an actual belief? In a way, yeah. A lot of these Fox people really do, you know, wish Trump had won or at least mm-hmm. wish the Democrats would be wiped off the face of the earth. So they're willing to go along, they're willing to augment their existing belief with a bunch of professed beliefs that they know are false, you know? But it's not as simple as, oh, well, some, you know, they're secretly a Democrat and they're getting paid to be shills for Republicans. That's not what happened. You know, it's this weird neo kayfabe moment, the the Dominion thing in in its way. And I think this is a good time. So I, I've kind of pitched this to people as saying this is going to be the single most important political book of the year. Wow, right? that is very kind of you. Jeez. So I believe it because okay. I, I, I'm Thank you. you're speaking my language. I, this, you're putting into paper stuff I've been trying to make the argument for, but you're doing it way better Thank than you. I did. Um, and so. So I think what's going to be interesting to a lot of folks, and one of the reasons I think a lot of non-wrestling types will pick this up, is that so a key part of this narrative is that and a guy who weaves in and out of it throughout the entire book, basically, is former President Donald Trump, who is, how do I put this diplomatically, notorious for embracing an alternate version of reality. Yeah. And in your coda, and I don't want to like spoil too much of the book, because I think you do a really wonderful job laying this out. Um, but to give listeners the elevator pitch in light of all this discussion about Neo Kayfabe, how important is McMahon yeah. to Trump? Right? Yeah, from what I can tell, Trump and McMahon and Vince, I should say, but also Linda, 
um, have been very close with, uh, I forgot how I started that sentence, but anyway, um, the Trumps and the McMahons have been close for a good long while, um, mm-hmm. at least since the mid eighties, mid to late eighties, when Trump and WWF, uh, joined forces to present a couple of WrestleManias, um, that were, you know, billed as being hosted by Trump and, uh, hosted at the Trump hotel and casino in Atlantic city. Of course, this was kayfabe as well. They were being hosted at a different center that was not, you know, a convention center type thing that was not owned by Trump. Um, but you saw on the screen, you know, on the screen, you saw a Trump hotel and casino. So anyway, um, at least since then, they've been close associates. Um, and boy, have there been intersections. Trump would come to events all the time. He'd get ringside seats. It doesn't set him apart too much, but he was more of a regular than basically anybody else. Um mm-hmm. He had been watching McMahon family wrestling since he was a child. I mean, Vince's father and grandfather were the bosses of wrestling in New York City. And, you know, we have people on the record talking about watching wrestling with Trump when they were both children, you know, childhood friends of his. And what really I think was the key moment, though, was in 2007 when Trump participated in like actually participated in a WrestleMania, not just hosting it, but had this whole storyline that was built up for weeks beforehand and then culminated at WrestleMania 2007, where uh, Trump and Vince were pretending to be rivals. They were pretending to hate each other um, and be competing over who's the best billionaire. And they called it the battle of the billionaires. Uh, They had two proxy wrestlers wrestle a match, you know, one on behalf of Trump and one on behalf of Vince. Uh, with the goal being, you know, whoever wins gets to shave the loser's hair off. Um, so, of course, Vince. I was actually there at that one. I, I, I you do, were? I, I do no. I, I, I was at WrestleMania 23 in Detroit. Um, like, uh, wow. Shout out to Frank if he's listening to this. My college friend and I, uh, actually a couple of us went down and uh, we went down to Detroit for this event. And so this is at the height of The Apprentice and all that. And so yeah, I remember. Yeah. When Trump came out, people were cheering. I think we were probably cheering because we didn't know what was going to happen in the next, like, you know, however many years. We had no idea. No, no, no. Um, but it's just like, okay, here's this big, weird billionaire guy on TV. And like, yeah, here's your other big, weird billionaire guy. So I was there for that one. And and, and uh, it, it was, I remember like you, being mad that the fake, I, I got to assume that money that drops down was fake. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but I remember being like, oh, they're not going to put it up on the nosebleeds. We're college students. We can't afford the ringside seats. We're no, up on the nosebleeds. Not, no, they're not going to put that up there. So I remember just like being irritated about that. <laughs> yeah. But like you're getting an interesting point about cheering for him because, you know, there's yeah. this. <laughs> my friend Daniel Kibblesmith uh, had a hmm. good line about this a long time ago. I think it was like when I was starting on the book. I was texting with him and he said, you know, if only we could live in the alternate universe where Trump just got hired to be a, a manager and heel at WWF or WWE rather. And just that's how he sated his desire to have crowds cheering and, you know, having people to screw over. Mm-hmm. If only he had actually bought raw in the way that the storyline presented him as having done in a couple of years after WrestleMania in 2009. You know, then we'd be living in a world where Vin, where Trump gets to get his jollies and was not actually in a place of political power. But alas, mm-hmm. that is not the timeline we live in. No, but I just remember like when he starts shaving Vince's head, people were losing their minds. Oh, it people was, lost their minds. Was, no, it was well, entertaining. Really like, that's good. the thing. Like, Trump's it is really entertaining. Good as a, yeah, Trump's really good as a wrestling figure. 
He's really mm-hmm. good at working a crowd like that. And I think he learned it from wrestling, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. He can't take a stunner to save his life, though. I'll tell you that. No, he like, cannot. Not. That is true. Go that back is and not watching him. The, just terrible. But he can no. do the clothesline. You know, I mean, that mm-hmm. ended up being this big controversy where, like, somebody made a little gif of Trump clotheslining Vince, but they put CNN's logo over Vince's head. And mm-hmm. early days of Trump, it's so amusing to think that this was something that was a scandal back then. But it was like, and this time of rising threats against the press, how can he post this GIF? And like, you mm-hmm. know, people had to comment on it. Now, of course, it wouldn't even be a blip. But mm-hmm. Seems the great. lasting impact of WrestleMania is there. You know, WrestleMania mm-hmm. 23 was a real epical event for better or for worse. So it is really interesting, I think, to see, and, and I think that you have, and you lay this out in the book really, really well, um, that idea that you say that Trump kind of learned a lot of this mm-hmm. from McMahon, from pro wrestling. And yeah. and I think those of us who kind of understood that language should see pretty early on what he was doing, right? Oh, I remember yeah. there were calls for, um, there was like a, I don't know if this ever actually came to fruition, but I remember being in contact with somebody who was putting together a book, um, uh, an academic book talking about, understanding like Trump through pro wrestling and in, in, yeah. in the language. I was actually, yeah, yeah. There've been a, in the academic anywhere, world, but. there has been writing in academia and in journalism mm-hmm. about Trump and wrestling. I'm not breaking the newest ground when it comes to that, mm-hmm. but what I hope I can offer is um, more of a narrative of it, mm-hmm. as opposed to just, Oh, did you notice these parallels? You know, more yeah. of a narrative of narrative how so Trump important. got involved in wrestling, how he got involved with the McMahons. Um, and there'll be much more of that in this hypothetical sequel because Trump and, and Vince intersect a lot before 1999, but the real key interactions don't come until well after that, you know, all the way up to and including Linda becoming a member of Trump's cabinet. Mm-hmm. Linda had a cabinet position. It's crazy. She was the director of small business administration. And then she left to go run the biggest pro Trump super PAC. Mm-hmm. And she's a major political fundraiser for the GOP now. You know, this is these were real impactful transformations. Mm-hmm. And the and the McMahons were right at the heart of them. Yeah, I mean, there's that there's that famous photo of uh, all of them in the Oval Office with Trump. Yeah. You got Triple H behind the, the Resolute desk. Right. So I, um, I, I think that narrative is crucial to all this. It's one thing to like sit in that kind of theoretical corner. But right. I mean, it's like, easy okay, to say like he's doing a wrestling bit because he is. Mm-hmm. But it, I felt like the challenge here was, and, you know, I got it's funny in the um I wrote this New York Times op ed that was about Neo Kayfabe. And I got a lot of like, oh, this has already been written about before. My only response mm-hmm. to that is it was an op-ed where I was presenting a bit of the theory. The book is not just me copying and pasting that op-ed. There's a lot of narrative and me backing up what I say. Um, mm-hmm. But I do think it's an important theoretical framework because we're trapped politically in this mindset where people are really still getting suckered by neo kayfabe. They learn yeah. one behind-the-scenes secret that's allegedly true, and they run mm-hmm. with it. For example, I mean, the Chate thing is actually a perfect example of that. You know, Barry Weiss, who is a complete hack and uh, an immoral monster, publishes this very obviously fake or at least ridiculous testimony from, you know, this woman at this hospital about how, you know, they're forcing transgenderism on on kids. And any anyone who knows anything about trans issues can read that initial Barry Weiss post and be like, this is complete nonsense. This is somebody making something up. Um, 
or they're they're kind of a lunatic. But the point is, John Chait sees this obvious bit of neo kayfabe, or at least obvious to everybody else, and goes, "Oh, I know a behind the scenes secret. They really are forcing transgender ideology on our children and chopping off their genitals." You know, and then he mm-hmm. writes this stupid article. And he looks like an idiot because it was so obviously just a neo kayfabe thing. Like Barry Weiss doesn't mm-hmm. care about whether she publishes true things or not. That's never mattered to her. But mm-hmm. Chait, who at least thinks of himself as a more serious journalist, um, even though he's not, ends up finding one little tidbit that confirms his priors, his Bayesian priors, and he just goes for it. And that's that's how neo kayfabe works. You know, they sucker you with a little bit of like, Ooh, here's the forbidden truth. And then Mm -hmm. you run with it and you think you've discovered the secret to everything. I'm just going to title this uh, um, Josie Reisman shoots on the pundit on the pundits. (laughs) Well, here's the thing. I feel bad because I used to share an employer with John Chait and Mm -hmm. as a proud trans woman, I have absolutely no qualms now about saying screw that guy. I mean, it's just such a, it is so mm-hmm. hateful and wrongheaded and false, just bad writing, bad reporting, and it causes real harm. So anyway, mm-hmm. I, 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 I have no problem shooting on John Chade. Uh, yeah, I, I, you are. This is, uh, you know, call Safe it a shoot podcast. <laughs> yeah, it's fine with me. I, I, I do not disagree with anything you're saying. Um, thank you, thank so I want to come back to get up on my high horse. But yeah, it's been on my mind the past couple of days. No, that and again, like all this stuff is connected. But I do want to come back to the idea of a safe space because there is a thing that came up in the book. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned there are two kind of key incidents where Vince uses his show as a way to kind of set a narrative and set a tone for something that's happening outside of the fiction, mm-hmm. right? So after the steroid trial, which is a pretty important part of yeah, the Vince yeah, McMahon story, the, trial, you, the DOJ, yeah. This starts to bleed into the on-screen product. You talk about that uh, WWF, WWF Superstars episode he did where he calls out the media and he paints himself. I'm an innocent businessman. I'm being unfairly targeted. Yeah, you know, yeah. it's like the Keystone cops are after me, all this kind of stuff, which you can yeah. just kind of tell all his references are from like the 1940s. Very like odd, yes. earlier. It's so weird. Um, then last year when it comes out, like, oh, this dude's spending company money and, and doing impropriety uh, in terms of like not just his behavior with sexual uh, harassment and, 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 and misconduct, but also, you know, possibly using company money to, to pay these settlements and that thing without yeah, hiding it's, it. It's complicated, but something in that ballpark. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. The, you know, the, there are people who have done a lot of good reporting. Yeah. On yeah. It. Read and, the Wall Street Journal. They've done a lot of good it. reporting on that. But yes. Yeah. I, I get what you're saying. Yes. Yeah. So and then he so his first move is to go on to Raw or sorry, SmackDown Smackdown. and just be like, I'm here. WWE is all of us. And, you know, forever. And just kind of like and doing that. Welcome to SmackDown. Vince. And then he throws away SmackDown. the mic. And yeah. Doesn't even acknowledge that it happened. Doesn't acknowledge yeah. that the reason why he's there. Yeah. Yeah. And the ratings sh- skyrocket because people are like, what's yeah. he going to say? What's he going to do? Gonna Which is that neo kayfabe at work. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, and, he's a master of it. He didn't invent yeah. it. You know, I mean, there are there were people who were doing that sort of thing initially before him, you know, the first real great Neo kayfabe moment happened on WCW mm-hmm. when, when Scott Hall shows up on nitro mm-hmm. and says, you know, you all know who I am, but you don't know why I'm here. Um, and pretends to sort of be an agent of the WWF infiltrating WCW. You know, that was the first great Neo kayfabe moment. That was, I mean, mm-hmm. you can argue that there are like little snippets of surprises before, but that was the first time that you really got this layered 
you know, palimpsest of like, mm-hmm. here's a lie and here's another lie and here's a truth and here's a lie and here's a truth. Like there's so much that's implied in that moment. And, you know, Brian Pillman, the loose cannon, you know, real innovator at Neo Kayfabe. Vince doesn't really get on board with what becomes Neo Kayfabe until like 96, 97, you know, and this stuff was happening mm-hmm. as early as 95. Anyway, I'm getting kind of granular there, but yes. No, that's and and we we like granular here. Um, okay, great. But <laughs> but yeah, it just kind of strikes me you know, again, and, and you see that parallel again, where it's like you you don't want to just control the narrative; you want to control the platform. Again, no. not not to belabor the point, you have you know the former president going, and when Twitter finally says, "Hey, maybe encouraging armed insurrection against the United States is not yeah, a thing right, we want on our right. platform." He goes off and and buys and, and like invests heavily into his own where he can just go do whatever he wants. Mm-hmm. And I and I feel like there is a parallel or connection there. Maybe I don't know what to do with that, but I just feel like it's worth mentioning. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Vince bought the bought the industry basically. I mean, he destroyed mm-hmm. all the other competition. And for about 20 years, from like 2001 to 2019, there was no major competition. And even mm-hmm. now, again, like we were saying, AEW competes for the eyeballs of wrestling heads. But in terms mm-hmm. of actual market penetration, it's not even close. You know, he's no. he sets the terms for what wrestling is. And mm-hmm. yeah, that's not unlike that. You know, the, the thing that also I should caution everyone to remember is from a certain perspective, Vince was the ultimate victor. Right. You know, he, he mm-hmm. won the wrestling wars. But if you look at it from another frame of reference, when it's not just wrestling, but it's combat sports slash sports entertainment, he lost to MMA. I mean, MMA mm-hmm. left wrestling in its dust by, yes. you know, the 2010s. And now, I mean, it's not even, again, it's, it's not even close. It's just MMA is a much bigger and more lucrative thing even than WWE. But within the wrestling fiefdom, he really did set the rules and not just the mm-hmm. rules, but the, the shape of what wrestling's allowed to be in the U S and Canada, even AEW. Yeah. I mean, most of their big stars are people who were previously big in WWE, you know, mm-hmm. and it's one of the big knocks against them. It's like, well, they have a bunch of former, you know, WWE did all the work. AEW is just profiting from it, which I don't think is entirely fair. I don't but, think that's entirely you know, fair, but I get, but the point I get what of, people are saying, the point of that statement is not, Oh, they're, you know, stealing or whatever. It's more just, mm-hmm. um, you know, they they need what Vince mm-hmm. has done in order to succeed. Yeah. They have not and, yet come up with a template that is that is free of Vince's influence. And how could you? He's been the defining axiomatic person of wrestling mm-hmm. for the past 20 plus years, if not before. I mean, that's just when he conquered the industry before, like actually had no more competition. He was the defining person who was setting the pace from a, as early as like 1985, 86. Mm-hmm. Well, you look back to like those first WrestleManias and the closed circuit TV and like nobody oh, else yeah. was doing that. And, and he was ripping off sort of people to a blueprint. certain extent. You know, yeah. he was not the first person Boxing to and that sort of thing. Yeah. But like it was massively successful and he was the mm-hmm. one who made it de rigueur. So um, there's a thing that was interesting and, you know, this ties back into the idea of Neo Kayfabe. There's a line you have in here and I loved this one again. Like I just loved a lot of lines. Here. I actually read this one out loud to my wife. Um, Vincent Kennedy McMahon was thrust into an inferno. Mr. McMahon was the part of him that did not burn to ash. Yes, and yes. that's such a, so first off, that's such a good line. Second, Thank it's you. also, I think dead on accurate. Ah. And there's a thing you, so I follow you on Twitter. We're, we're Twitter yeah. mutuals. Yeah. And, uh, you mentioned that 
like the reaction to this book, you think that people are going to be more receptive to it because on a certain level, we're already primed to think of Mr. McMahon as, as the a heel. Like we know or celebrate that he's the bad guy. Yes, precisely. There's this degree to which, you know, Vince kind of uh, did the work for me. Um, mm-hmm. You know, uh, he is... He's he's a heel in his programming. <laughs> you know, he's the bad guy. He he may, mm-hmm. sets himself up to be hated and he profits off of that hatred. And that's a stark difference from Stan Lee. Stan Lee never wanted to be hated. Stan Lee wanted to be loved mm-hmm. and did everything he could to be loved and was successful in that. And that meant there's a limited audience for True Believer because a lot of people are going to go a sad story about Stan Lee. Well, mm-hmm. I don't have any interest in that. Um, because books are still for most people just entertainment. It's not like the average person's an academic working on a paper. You want to read something that's entertaining and maybe a little enlightening. And a depressing story about Stan Lee is a harder sell than a story about Vince McMahon being a jerk. Because mm-hmm. even if you love Vince McMahon, you love to hate him. And so mm-hmm. he's already paved the way for a book about his alleged crimes, uh, among other things. Mm-hmm. But do you think also so I'm I'm thinking back to um, when he did come on TV after the uh, allegations and accusations last year, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, and you had people doing the whole, you know, bowing like we're not worthy kind of Wayne's world thing to him. And I wonder, too, if there isn't like a degree, it's like, you know, it's not so much that we love to hate him. It's that we kind of wish we were him in some to some. Well, degree, yeah, right? sure. I mean, that's that's. And, and that's do you think that for a lot the, of fans, that's the case? Yeah, I think for a lot of people who are trying to make it in business or just in the mm-hmm. world, the idea of being a billionaire ain't so unappealing, you know? Mm-hmm. And that's how you get Trump in a lot of ways, too, mm-hmm. is like you just end up with people going, well, I'm not a billionaire yet, but I could be someday. And if I am, mm-hmm. I'm going to be like that billionaire, you know, yeah. or yeah, you have to be a bastard, but that's what it takes to get ahead in this world, that sort of thing. Um, yeah. So I think a lot of people still completely look up to him you know, or, or mm-hmm. grudgingly say, you know, well, he's a tough guy, but his tactics get results, you know, and that's mm-hmm. that's the kind of thing that leads to a lot of bad thinking and not just wrestling, mm-hmm. but any number of human endeavors. And I, I was, as we were talking about this, I was just kind of thought, you know, um, with the the Trump parallel again, you know, his big thing, he trademarked, you know, you're fired. Right. Yeah. Um, Vince was doing that first. This was exactly. He was doing it well before that. And I wonder if that's another thing that consciously or unconsciously he kind of like took from him. As yeah. And I don't know. I, I tried very hard yeah. to get an interview with Trump. I tried really hard. I mm-hmm. did not take that lightly. Vince, I didn't put in that much effort because I just, you know, I put in a sufficient amount of effort, but they said no. And that was a pretty obvious no. Um, but yeah. Trump likes to talk. So mm-hmm. I and I know political reporters who've interviewed him. So I used a bunch of different strategies to try to get to him and mm-hmm. never got past his handlers. Um, I think Trump would have been willing to talk to me, but I think his handlers were a little more wary. Um, so I don't yeah. actually know. But from what I've heard from people around Trump, he learned a lot from Vince and he likes Vince and mm-hmm. they talk, you know, hmm. like pretty regularly. I, I, I haven't heard updates in the past year or so, but from what I hear, they're 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 still about as close as Trump gets to people. So 
on that kind of business front, you know, um, one of the other big stories, so you mentioned this in the book, you know, WWE has a longstanding business relationship with the kingdom of Saudi Arabia. And that yeah, is yeah, probably yeah. Not one that of their... long, but it's, it's, it has been around for a few years. Yeah. Especially since yeah. Mohammed bin Salman Al Saud um, came to power in 2017. Yeah. And it's, you know, arguably without, you know, if it's one of their less savory business relationships for a lot of reasons, yeah. but especially, you know, um, Jamal Khashoggi. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And, Human rights abuses, you know, yeah. all that stuff. Yeah. Yeah, and so you and you even have people on the WWE roster. Sami Zayn comes to mind, who actively yeah, refused to go do shows in Saudi Arabia, yeah. um, which is probably going to keep him from being champion and, and yeah. to us to some extent, or yeah. like maybe put a ceiling on what he can do. Um, and there was also that rumor that went around that was pretty quickly shut down, but you know oh, certainly the seems plausible. Yeah, that, yeah. The, that the public investment fund would buy it. Yeah. Um, you know, based on what you've done and, and maybe this is something kind of outside uh of of the, the the text here but you know you've certainly spent a lot of time thinking about this writing about this researching this guy do you think that is vince if he's going to sell this company is he looking for money alone or is he looking for power does he still want to have a place in it and would that influence who buys it like I, how, you know, how do you think it would influence vince that? right now is kind of a black box even long-standing wrestling reporters who've been doing this a lot longer than I have and have mm-hmm. source relationships that may be problematic, but at least give them insider information. Even those guys and gals do not know what's going on in Vince's head right now. It is so unclear. I think that's because even people at WWE don't know what's going on inside Vince's head right now. I think basically mm-hmm. only Vince knows. And he is very good at creating an atmosphere of chaos and uncertainty at his company. I think he thrives off of that, in fact. Um, and I don't know what's going to happen. I hesitate to guess too much, but I don't think the Saudis would be a nonsensical deal. You know, mm-hmm. I think it would add up if that were to happen. Um, the yeah. Saudis are not going to hassle Vince about worker rights abuses, Lord knows. The Saudis are not going to hassle him about having outrageous content because if they were upset about that, they wouldn't have been investing in him already, you know, mm-hmm. as opposed to like Amazon or something buying them, which they'd have to take on all this new sort of moral liability by having this slightly outrageous show, although it's not as outrageous mm-hmm. as it used to be. But still, um, you know, it's just it would make sense. But. Then again, Vince has surprised us all many times in the past. So mm-hmm. um, I think he does want to retain some degree of control. I don't think mm-hmm. he's willing to give up this company and just let somebody else run what he perceives himself as having built. Um, yeah, I don't know. I don't know what the future holds, but I'm, I'll be watching it along with everybody else. And I think that's one of the reasons why I don't want to write this sequel just yet, because there's so yeah. many things that have not played out. You know, I know there's going to be... People saying I should write it sooner. I shouldn't say I know that, but I suspect people, if they like the book, will be like, well, where's the rest of this story? But I just don't think you can tell that rest of the story because the rest of the story isn't over yet. You know, Mm -hmm. I mean, people were like, can't you update it to have it be up to him leaving? And it's like, well, he's back. You know, I mean, that was one of the reasons I didn't update it to that point was I didn't think he was really gone. You know, that's the one thing that's kind of comical about this book now is it has like X CEO, ex-chairman, mm-hmm. which was something that we had to add at the last minute because he had just mm-hmm. stepped back. And of course, now by the time it comes out, he'll be back in the saddle of a lot of things. But I think people will forgive that. It's just always the nature of publishing a book. It's I know. Like it's the, a long the, lead, the, the time, lead time and so it was a chaotic situation. But, but let me put it this way. No one's going to read my book and then 
learn about what's happened since then and go, well, those two things are inconsistent. <laughs> you'll learn about what's happened since then and you'll go, well, that all adds up with what I've learned from Ringmaster, hopefully. You wrote a really wonderful article about the book of Job and what it has to teach us. And oh, I think it's thematically. Um, um, I'm sorry, where did you publish that again? Just that was so people Slate. Can track it that was Slate. It was Slate. Slate's, it was Slate's sixth highest trafficked um, article of last year. So I was very um, proud of that. But yes, thank you. Yeah. And I think, and I think it's worth reading after you read this book and, you know, talking about the onmaking of America, I think that article mm. in a lot of ways provides the kind of like template for like, well, here's how we go forward now that America's mm. unmade, you know, what do we build from Thank it? There? You. I, I hadn't really even thought bad. of those two as being linked, but I think you are right. I mean, with my third book, the one I'm starting now, it's very much one about the limits of skepticism as a way of life. You know, these first mm -hmm. two books are very skeptical books. And the third one will be as well. But something I found while writing this book was like, it can be really soul draining just to spend all of your time criticizing and, you know, mm -hmm. making making the truth known because the truth only gets mm -hmm. you so far. The truth is very depressing. And if you live only in truth and not in some kind of belief in a better mm -hmm. world or a better life or whatever, um, you can easily get uh you know battered down and then nobody wins then you know or the bad guys win so yeah i do think you have to pick your kayfabe wisely because we all need kayfabe you can't function in this world without some degree of mixing fact and fiction to create a belief that's just how we operate that's how you do things that are completely non-religious non-wrestling a lot of things rely on that belief and I hope in the third book, which I guess I haven't even said, it's a biography or biographical sketch of the musician Beck, and um, especially in the 90s. And it's very much a story about how somebody who was very critique-oriented, somebody who was very critical of society, really hit a wall. And a big part of that is just that being critical can only take you so far. You have to have some kind of positive belief as well. And... Um, not that Ringmaster is just going to be a slog, but I know writing it could be very demoralizing at times. You know, you're writing about stuff that's just awful and it's really hard to, it's really hard to just process all of that and not lose your mind. Yeah. So Hollywood Freaks is the name of the book. Uh, as yes. Right the now, back correct? book is called Hollywood Freaks. So that'll be something worth looking forward to. I think it's going to be an interesting companion piece of the themes you've developed so far. Yeah. Um, yeah. I'm thinking of like calling them all like, an amazing, like, I have to give some kind of title to this like grouping of books, but I, I the one I keep coming back to is American Myth. Like I feel like this mm -hmm. could be the American Myth series. It's about people who created myths and who also themselves became myths, um, or at least generated myths that uh, were separate from the truth of what they were. And those myths can be very beautiful and very impactful, but they are indeed myths. And I hope to um, shine some light on what really happened. Ringmaster, Mystic Man, and the Onmaking of America out on March 28th, wherever you get your books. Or you can go pre-order it at ringmasterthebook.com. Even better, ringmasterthebook.com. Pre-order it. Um, True Believer, Rise and Fall of Stanley is also available. And look forward to Hollywood Freaks. Josie Reisman, thank you so much. Oh, this was such a pleasure. Fun. Thank um, you so much, Brian. Thanks again to Abraham Josephine Reisman for appearing at Serious Fun. Check out Ringmaster, available March 28th. 
Thank you also to everyone at Phoenix Studios for helping to make this show possible. That will do it for Serious Fun. As always, I am your host, Dr. Brian Carr. And until next time, please be good to yourselves and to each other. You just listened to a Phoenix Studio production, the podcast network for the University of Wisconsin-Green Bay. For more podcasts, please visit uwgb.edu forward slash podcasts.